Again, that's Colossians 1. We're going, to be in ver- we're going to read verses 9 through 23, but the passage this morning starts in verse 12. We're just going to read a little bit beforehand. Again, that's Colossians 1, starting in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And this morning especially, we thank you for passages like this which remind us how big and how great You are and how small we are. God, we thank You that You didn't leave us in our hostility and our alienation from You, but that You sent Your Son, Your beloved Son, into this world to redeem us and save us. That even though you had created everything and were completely worthy of allegiance, and even though we had rejected you in spite of that, you saved us anyway. We pray that this morning, that as we look at your word, as we look at this passage, that as we learn from Paul, as he gives thanks to you, that as we learn more about You, that we would respond the same way He does to that knowledge. And that's with gratitude and thanksgiving to You for who You are and what You've done for us. Jesus, we thank You for Your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank You that You created all things and are even now sustaining it and sustaining us as we study these very verses which talk about that. It's in your name we pray. 
Amen. Yesterday, I was at a wedding, and before the wedding, me and some of the groomsmen were having lunch together, and the lunch we were having were these, you know, these sub sandwiches that they, they brought in for us. And after we had finished eating, this one guy had a whole lot left in front of him. And he kind of looked at all of us, and I thought that what he was going to say was, I bit off more than I can chew, but he didn't say that. He said, I, I, I didn't bite off more than I could chew, I picked up more than I could bite off. And I thought it was funny at the time. But as he said it, I was thinking about this passage because I knew that I was going to be preaching it today. And this whole week as I've been studying it and thinking about it and praying through it, that's exactly how I feel is that it's just such a huge passage that no matter how small of a chunk I would preach it in, I would still be picking up more than I can bite off because it's just a substantial passage within the New Testament with a ton of really good theology within it. And so, as I said, we're focusing on 12 through 23, but we read that whole thing because it's important for us to get the context of what's taking place here. A few weeks ago when we were in Colossians, we talked about this progression that Paul makes in Colossians 1. He says that he's he's praying for the Colossians, and he prays specifically that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And then he says that as they're filled with the knowledge of God's will, the result of that will be that they'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is fleshed out in these four things. Bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened, and giving thanks, which is at the beginning of verse 12. And then the rest of this section, all the way down to 23, is Paul doing just that. He's giving thanks to God for all of these things. First, he gives thanks to the Father. Then he gives thanks to the Son, mostly for who he is. And then finally, he gives thanks to the Son for what he's done for the Colossians. And I think this is this is hugely important for us to understand if we're really going to get what's happening here. And the, the reason why that is is because normally when we read these verses, what happens is uh, we, we just think that what Paul set out to do was write this, this great theology, this hugely important passage on who Christ is for us. But that's not what's taking place. What's taking place here is we get a, a peek at Paul worshiping God. He gets down to verse 12, he says that the Colossians should give thanks, and then he just can't help himself. He overflows into thanksgiving to God and writes these beautiful verses about who the Father is and who the Son is and what he's done for the Colossians. And so as we study these verses, we shouldn't study them like they're just a a theology book. We should study them like they're a worship song that's been written by Paul that we get to read. They're not a song, they're really closer to a poem, but he's giving thanks to God. And so as we study these things this morning, the the goal for us should be that we respond with gratitude to God. And the main point this morning is just that, that knowing who God is and what he's done produces thanksgiving. Knowledge of God, knowledge of who He is and what He's done for us produces thanksgiving within us. That's the proper response to thinking about God, to reading about God, to talking about God, to learning about God. As we get more knowledge of who He is, the response in us to Him should be worship and mostly thanksgiving to God for who He is. This first part, in verses 12 and 13, He he 
gives thanks specifically to the Father. And he does that for three things the Father does. He says that the Father has qualified us, the Father has delivered us, and the Father has transferred us. So the first one, he says he's uh, qualified us. Paul says he's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so we should really have two questions here. Is Number one, how has he qualified us? And then number two, what has he qualified us for? Because it's great that Paul says he's qualified us, but we need to know more about that in order to understand why we should be thankful for that. Paul uses this word qualify throughout his letters to mostly talk about himself. He talks about how God has qualified him for this position that he wasn't previously qualified for. So he wasn't fit for this task, but God did something in him or to him or for him to make him fit for it. And so when he says that we've been qualified, the Colossians have been qualified, and and we have been qualified to share in this inheritance, what he's saying is that God has done something for us who were not previously qualified so that we could become qualified. And the obvious answer to that is what happened on the cross. right? Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. He takes away all of our unrighteousness, and he gives us his righteousness. He makes us right with God, and because of that, we become qualified to be his people, to have a relationship with him. And what he's qualified us for here, Paul says, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's a really odd phrase that you and I probably don't use ever to describe our relationship with God. But for the Jews, this was common. And what they used is they they used it to talk about the way that they as a people, different from everybody else, no other people, no other nation had this kind of relationship with God. And that's how they described themselves at points in the Old Testament, how they had inherited this relationship with God. And eventually they would have all things with him. And so what Paul is doing here in verse 12 is he's telling these predominantly Gentile people, that because of what God has done for them, because of what the Father has done for them, they are now qualified along with this one nation to become the people of God and inherit everything that was promised to them in the Old Testament. So, if you hear people or see billboards or crazy websites or hear crazy pastors say things that, you know, the Jewish people are the special people of God, say, no, they're not. They don't matter anymore. The people of God are those who trust in Christ, regardless of what their nation is, regardless of what their heritage is. Everyone is included together because the Father has qualified us through Christ. The next thing he says is that he's delivered us. And then finally, he's transferred us. And these two things go together. He takes us out of one place and puts us in another. He says he delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's one kingdom. And he transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. There's only two options. There's not a handful of kingdoms to choose from. You're either in the domain of darkness or you're in the kingdom of his beloved son. And Paul tells us that the father moves us out of one and puts us in another. This is what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. This is what's going on here. Paul's not talking about physical locations. He's talking about spiritual locations, that we belong apart from Christ in 
the kingdom of Satan. We're under the dominion of darkness. We're under the, we're enslaved to our sin. And because of the cross, God takes us out of that. He delivers us from that and puts us under the reign of his son. And that is what makes Paul's transition to talk about Christ. So he's moved us into the kingdom of his son. And then the rest of this passage is going to be focused on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But before we move on, I want to point out one thing about what he says about what the Father does. All of these things, he's qualified us, he's delivered us, he's transferred us. We need to recognize the fact that all of those things are past tense. They're things that have happened to us. He has delivered us, he has transferred us, he has qualified us. If you're a believer, these things have already happened. God has already done this for us. And this is going to be important for us as we go through Colossians because we're going to see this again and again and again. All throughout the New Testament, the, the things we do as believers, the way that we live, the way that we obey, the way that we follow Christ, it all flows out of what's already been done for us on the cross. It's not about us doing all of these things of our own steam. It's about us working out what has been done for us. All of these things have happened. We simply live out the results of it. The first thing Paul tells us about Christ is that it's in Him that we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in this short little phrase, he gives us really two sides of the same coin that talk about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The second half is, is a lot easier for us to understand. He simply says our sins are forgiven. What he means is that the penalty that we deserve to pay for all of our sin is put away. It's, it's, it's gone. It's no more. But the first part is a little more complicated. We have redemption. And that's because we don't use the word redemption a lot. We do in the church, but outside of the church, it's not a common word. And what it means is to buy back or purchase someone out of slavery, to set a captive free. And so what's going on here is when Paul says, in whom we have redemption, speaking about Christ, the forgiveness of sins, he's, he's stressing the fact that on the cross, Jesus didn't just put away the penalty for our sin. He did that, thankfully. But he also, also took away its power. He purchased us by his blood, bought us out from under our slavery to sin so that we could be free from it. That's a good thing. We have to emphasize that. We can't just say that our sins have been put away because if that's what happens on the cross, then we're all still in trouble. If, if just the payment that we had to pay for our sin is, is done away with, but we're still under our sin, then we're just going to rack up more debt. But the fact that he's taken that penalty and then freed us from out of underneath our slavery to sin, we can actually move forward. We can actually follow Christ. We can actually live the life that God calls us to. We can live in a manner worthy of the Lord like Paul has just finished talking about to the Colossians. doesn't mean that we'll be perfect. doesn't mean that we won't ever sin again. But it means that we're able to live righteous. These next five verses are five of the most significant verses in the entire New Testament. And when I get to these verses, I always think about pork chops. The reason why is because I hate pork chops. 
And that's because, and I'm not going to mention any names, mostly to protect myself, but I have never, ever in my entire life been served a decent pork chop. And a couple times, I have been served extremely bad pork chops. I'm only guessing, but the recipe most often seems to be turn your oven up as high as it will possibly go, take the food, put it in the oven until all of the moisture in the entire house has been steamed away, and then serve it to your guests. And then you chew, and you chew, and you chew, and you chew, and then you take a break because your jaw hurts. And then you do that thing where you take the napkin. (laughs) And you're still not done with it. That's this passage. It's not gross. It's not disgusting. It's not overly cooked food. But it's something that no matter how many times we come to these five verses and study them and study them and study them and seek to understand them more and more and more, there's always more in it. These are five of the most theologically rich verses in the entire Bible. And what's amazing is that Paul didn't set out to do that. He just set out to praise Christ to give thanks to God for who He is. And he, he writes this, what is essentially a poem, about how Christ reigns over both the old creation and the new creation. And there's always going to be more here. And so, if as I'm talking about these things, you think, Dan missed that, Dan missed that, you're right. No matter how much we talk about this passage, no matter how much we study this passage, we're always going to miss stuff. And there's always going to be more. But let's jump in anyway. The first thing he says is that Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. And what often happens here, at least when I've studied this passage in the past or heard people talk about it, they they go from here to say that you know, when Jesus was on the earth, he talked about how no one had ever seen God. No one has ever seen God, but the Son has made Him known. And then they talk about how all throughout Scripture, whenever anybody sees God, they see Jesus. And that might very well be true. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Remember, the purpose of this passage, especially the first three verses, are to talk about how Jesus reigns over all creation. And so if you're somebody who's familiar with the Bible's account of creation and you hear Paul say he is the image of the invisible God, you're not going to think about Christ representing God in the world as his image. You're going to be thinking about how Adam and Eve in Genesis 1-3 through are talked about as the image of God. Human beings were created in God's image. And so when Paul here says that he's the image of the invisible God, I think that what he's talking about is how Jesus, in the same way that Adam and Eve represented God to the world, that's one of the ways he was sent into the world. He was sent into the world to bear God's image. But Paul doesn't just say that. He says he's the image of the invisible God. And so he he takes that language from Genesis and then he ratchets it up just a bit. And I think that what he's doing here is he's, he's taking Jesus' humanity, 
And he's taking his divinity, his, his perfect divinity and his perfect humanity, and he's just smashing them together in this phrase to emphasize the fact that Jesus was the perfect human and the perfect representation of God to the world. He has the dominion that Adam should have had in creation. He represents God to creation in the way that Adam and Eve should have represented God to creation. He does all that we should do as people and more because he's perfect. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the most prominent person in all of creation. And that phrase, let's first talk about what it doesn't mean. To say that Jesus is the firstborn of creation doesn't mean that he's the first thing that was created. Jesus was not created. He is God, and he always has been. For the Jews, the firstborn was simply the most important child in the family. They came first with time, and they also came first in importance. And so if you're a parent... It's okay to have favorites as long as it's the firstborn. Usually the firstborn son, actually, so girls don't count. Just in Scripture. Here they count. So to say that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, it doesn't mean that he's the first creation. What it means is that he's the most significant, the most prominent. He comes first both in time and rank. He's always existed and he is the most significant. And Paul tells us why in the next two verses. He says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the firstborn because he created everything. Everything exists through him, everything exists for him, and he is sustaining all of it. That's why he's the firstborn. Because without him, none of this exists, and even if it did, it falls apart. He is sustaining all of it. What this means is that as we look out at creation, all of it, the stuff that we can see, the stuff that we can't see. It exists because of Him. That means the tree in your backyard. It's there because Christ made it. It exists for Him. Your pet fish, if you have a pet fish, it was made by Christ. It exists for Him. Your kids, they don't exist for you. They don't exist for your grandparents or their grandparents. They don't exist for anybody other than him. doesn't mean that we can't enjoy our children, but it means that they don't belong to us in the way that they belong to him. And they don't exist for us in the way that they exist for him. All things were created through him and for him. And he gives us this example just so we understand exactly how preeminent over creation he is. It says thrones, dominions, rulers, and authority. And what he's doing here is he's giving us this, this all-inclusive example to show us how he reigns over creation. 
And he demonstrates that by giving us this list of these people who hold power. So he thinks to the Colossians, you know, imagine all the positions of power that you can. Jesus is over them. So this first one, he says thrones. That's literally the seat of power. So this would be the office that someone holds. So, for example, this would be the the president. Not the person, but the office. The office of the president. The next one, dominions. This is the realm of power that the office is over. So in this case, it would be the U.S. The U.S. is the dominion. Rulers are the actual people. The person that's in the office. So in our case, it would be Obama, whether you like him or not. And the last one, the authority, that's the power that they have. So all the power that the Constitution gives to the president is what's envisioned here. And Paul uses this this all-encompassing example to show that Jesus has even power over that. Those people, those positions, those offices, those dominions, they get their power from him. And he has power over them. He is over everything. And everything exists before for him, and in him all things hold together. I was thinking about this last night as I was driving back from this wedding, and it was pouring down rain, just buckets and buckets and buckets of rain, more rain than I'd driven through in a long time. And I was thinking about this passage and how, like it says, Jesus holds together all of creation. That means that every single raindrop that was pelting my windshield was sent on its course by him and carried along its course by him and propelled off my windshield by him. And he was sustaining all of it. That should baffle us. Shannon and I were talking about this the other day, about how like even in the incarnation, when Jesus is in Mary's womb, He's sustaining the cells of his mom. That's insane. The only thing our babies do is just eat whatever comes down the cord, however they do that. Like as his cells were dividing, he was creating the new ones and sustaining the old ones. That's insane. The fact that he is sustaining all of creation, even then, even in that moment, the fact that he's doing it even now should blow our minds. Everything exists through him and for him and continues to exist through him and for him. It's amazing. He's upholding, Paul here is upholding Jesus as the one who is supreme over all creation. And then he turns a corner in verse 18. He moves from talking about creation in general to talking about the new creation. He says, and he is the head of the body of the church. So he he talks about them specifically as a group. He's head over the church. And this is a reason why we at BC have a plurality of elders or pastors. It's because we don't ever want to give the impression that one person is in charge of this church. Because the reality is that none of us are. No matter how many elders we have, Christ is the head of the church, both big C all across the world and little C right here. 
The elders of this church simply serve as, as middle management. We're running things for the guy who's in charge. And we only get to keep our jobs if we do it like he wants us to. And then he says, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. At first, it seems like Paul's just repeating himself here. Like he's reemphasizing something he said earlier, but he's, he's talking about a second, a new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead in the resurrection, in this new creation life. He's making something different than it was before. He's not just firstborn over all creation. He's firstborn over the new creation as well, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's what he talks about in verse 19. He says, why? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is talking about the fact that Jesus didn't just make the world. He didn't just make it so that everything exists for him. He didn't just make it and and sustain it. He also does what needs to be done to redeem it. He's making it new. He's bringing about this new creation where he's reconciling all things to himself by virtue of his death on the cross. That's what he set out to accomplish, and that's what he accomplished. Look back over this passage and pay attention to when Paul says or uses the word all things. He says, all things were created by him. All things were created for him. All things hold together in him or through him. And finally, he says that all things are reconciled by him to himself. He's emphasizing again and again and again in this passage the all-encompassing nature of who Christ is and what He's done for us. He reigns over all. He makes all things new. He's redeeming and reconciling everything because of what He's done. And just in case the Colossians don't get it, He makes it specific for them. He says, And you... Supplies to us as well, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So he says he's reconciled all things. All across the world, he's reconciled everything. And then Paul says, in you, us as individuals, he's reconciled. This is important for us because when we talk about salvation in the church, we are almost always focused on an individual basis. God saved me from my sin. And absolutely He did. And that's something that we should be grateful for and thankful for. But if that's how we understand redemption, if that's how we understand what Christ has done on the cross, then we are missing it. Because Paul goes to great pains to explain how cosmic redemption is. It's bigger than us. He's not just reconciling me and you to himself. He's reconciling everything to himself. This means that when we think about our role in creation as those who bear his image, our goal isn't just to go out and help people with their behavior. 
to help them be saved from their sin. We should absolutely preach the gospel so that that happens. But Christ is reconciling everything to himself, not just people's problems with sin. This is what Paul talks about at the end. He says this message, this gospel, it's been proclaimed in all creation. He doesn't mean to every single person, because Paul knows that that hasn't happened yet. He means in all the world. Elsewhere in his letters, he talks about how creation is groaning. The world itself longs for Christ to return because that's when everything will be set right. Everything will be made new and finally reconciled as it was supposed to be at the beginning. And so as we think about this passage, I think the goal for us And in some ways, I think the reason why the Spirit inspired Paul to write it this way is that we would recognize how much bigger, not just Jesus, but even this short passage about him is than us. He is preeminent. He is supreme over everything. And obviously that includes us. And so even though we like to put ourselves forward as the person who's in charge of our lives or in charge of our little worlds or our little domains, Christ reigns over all. And He's making all of it new for Himself, not for us. And the purpose of Paul writing all of this, it's not just to teach us more about who God is and what He's done. That's certainly a byproduct. But his goal is that the Colossians and through this this letter in the word us would learn how to give thanks to God for what he's done for us. And so we shouldn't leave here thinking that we're done, that we've got this passage. We should leave here thinking there's so much about this passage that I don't understand. There's so much about the Bible as a whole that I don't understand. I need to know more about Him. And as we know more about Him, thanksgiving will be produced within us. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, we don't often talk about it or focus on it because it seems like just a a natural kind of routine thing that He does. But as He passes out the bread and the cup to His disciples, he He gives thanks for them. And for us, I'm sure we can understand that often when we pray before meals, it's just something that's a routine, something that we don't think about. We just do. Maybe even say the same thing we normally say. But thinking about the fact that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we talk about the fact that the cup represents that His blood was shed for us and for our sin. As we talk about the fact that the bread represents the fact that His body was broken for us and for our sin. That's absolutely something that we should be thankful for. It shouldn't be something that we just think, well, we do this every week, and so I guess it's time. We should be thankful for what they represent. And so... As Paul has written this this huge passage which stresses how much we have to be thankful for, 
as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you to do what Jesus does when they take the Lord's Supper, and that's actually give thanks for it.